Thank you, Craig. There's nothing more disconcerting than when you get up to speak and half the church disappears. <clears throat> I want to ask a question. What is the worst sound in the world? Now, for those of you old enough to remember what a blackboard is like, this sound is pretty awful. The sound of someone scratching their fingernails on the blackboard. This sound is also pretty worrisome. <laughs> when you hear, hoo, 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 and you think, quick, get him off the carpet, get him onto the vinyl, so we can mop it up a bit more easily. And there's also this sound. On a cold, frosty morning, when you go out to start your car, and all you hear is, <clears throat> and then for some strange reason, you try it again, and you hear, <clears throat> and then hope against hope, you try one more time, and you hear, <clears throat> or sometimes you don't hear anything at all, and then you know that your battery is flat. And it always happens at an inconvenient time. But you know, sometimes people get run out of oomph as well. Then my father developed a strange hobby when he, was, when he got to about, well, younger than I am. He decided to run, because he'd been a runner in his youth. And uh, he ran, and he ran in something called the City to Surf, and I was there to collect him at the end, and I thought, gosh, he looks like he's going to be to die. <clears throat> but he recovered, and then he wandered, that was only about 6.7 k's, and then he ran longer and longer, and then he decided he was going to run a marathon, which he managed, but afterwards he was so thrilled with himself, he ran another marathon, and another. He kept on running, it was his hobby. But he used to talk about something called hitting the wall, that is you're about 80% of the way through, and suddenly your body just says, we don't want to do this anymore. And sometimes it happens in life for us too, we're so busy, we're coping with life and all the things that get thrown at us, and then we get to a point where we feel, gosh, we feel stressed. So the question I have for you is, do you have enough energy to get to the end? Because the end might be some distance off. You know, we can take encouragement from Jesus because in Luke 5.15 it says, but the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Now, they didn't have TV in those days, or radio, or social media. It was just word of mouth. People were excited. You come to Jesus, and he can heal diseases. And, of course, he was doing that day in, day out. In fact, there are some verses that say, multitudes came to him, and he healed them. But Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Why? Because he was exhausted. It's physically demanding to meet the needs of people day in, day out particularly when they had such high expectations. So since Jesus drew aside to recharge, so should we. And we do that by um, praying and by thinking about the greatness of God. And there's a wonderful verse in Isaiah which says, that those who trust the Lord will find new strength. They will be strong like eagles soaring upward on wings. And you get that by reading the scriptures and reflecting on them by listening to worship songs and singing along, by listening to podcasts. And recharging is really necessary. But do you have real power? That's the question. Wouldn't you like to do more than just survive? The last two years we've had, as well as the normal pressures of life, we've had the extra pressures of COVID 
and government restrictions. And I remember the first time we went to a supermarket in Cromwell, and I was wearing a mask, and we got into it, and suddenly this voice was on the loudspeaker saying, follow the guidelines. And I'm thinking, what am I doing wrong? And I got round to, into one of the aisles and was walking down, and some woman came to the other end, looked at me, and then <gasps> and dodged away because the eyes weren't that wide. And I thought, this is weird. And we played this, this game in a number of supermarkets where you're kind of dancing around people, and while you're doing that, somebody comes along, brushes right beside you, and then fills up the shelves. It was strange. We were so nervous and so um, worried about this, what could happen. But you know, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said something. This is the risen Lord speaking to his disciples. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. As you, and you probably know the rest of that, that verse. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But that word that we translate as power is the Greek word dunamis. We get an English word dynamite from that. And dynamite means explosive power. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said this, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. And if you're wondering about that illustration, I'm just trying to compare uh, an ordinary little car to something that's much more powerful, like this um, dump truck that works in the Australian mines. So what did Paul do when he was in, first in the Corinthians? He spoke to them, of course, but did he pray for people and they got healed? I suspect so. Did he cast out demons? We don't know. But he did something that demonstrated the power of God. So... How do you get that sort of power? Wouldn't it be great to pray for someone and see them instantly healed? But we have to get our attitude right. If we go through life sort of thinking we were going to achieve our own personal goals and to do that we're going to walk over people, then that's not going to help us. Years ago, the American president, J.F. F. Kennedy, said... Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But I think we can turn that around slightly and say, ask not what God can do for you, ask what you can do for your God. Now I'm making a big assumption here that I'm normal, and I may not be, but sometimes I find when I'm praying to God, I'm giving, presenting to him a shopping list of all the things I'd like him to do. I'd like him to help me and my family and my health, and I, the way the list goes and my attitude for being arrogant. But we need to get our priorities right. Our first priority should be to honour God. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, this is first. It's, if you read it, it says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it was interesting that a couple of years ago, in 2018, the New Zealand government report into mental health and addiction came up with this amazing statement. It says, the best way to increase our own well-being is to have more concern for the well-being of others. Now, of course, those of us who have read the Bible have learnt this many years ago. 
When Jesus was telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, he asked the question, which of these three, that is the Levite, the Samaritan, and the priest, do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell into the robber's hand? And they said, the one who showed compassion to him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. But when we show compassion on other people, when we do something for them, we might think, hey, I've done something for them, which is good. But you've also done something for yourself. In the to-do list, we now have, one, honour God, two, help others. When a scribe came to, to Jesus and said, which commandment is the foremost of all? He replied, you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, plus some other things. He meant with 100% of your heart, not with 50% or 70 or even 90, but with 100%. That's a big ask. Because selfishness and ambition still lurks in the hidden recesses of our hearts. How do I know this? Two ways. One, I've read some of the scriptures which talk about this, because in Jeremiah 17.9 it says, The heart is more deceitful and is desperately sick who can understand it. I've also seen some strange things in the 50 years I've been a Christian. I remember once being in a fairly large church, and when someone was sick and in hospital, the elders would have a race to see who got there first. And often they'd beat the pastor. And I thought, this is strange. Why are they doing this? Is it because of compassion? I don't think it was. I think it was of desire to show that they are compassionate, to show that they are a leader, to say that, look at me. There was something of amb ambition there, which was sad. And when James wrote to the, the church, and we see this in James 3.16, he, he said, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. We see ambition in political life. We see ambition in, uh, in firms and companies. We see it amongst musicians. We see it everywhere, this idea that they want to be number one. Even in a small group, you'll find there are people competing because someone wants to be the president, they want to be the boss. But when you have ambition in your heart, even a little bit, it will stay there and it will fester and it will grow. And this is what James was saying. If it still lurks there, if you still want to be number one, if you want to compete and dominate other people, then you're going to create lots of evil things. Lord Acton, who was a British MP over 100 years ago, came up with this famous statement. He said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there are many stories of people who have been fine, and even religious leaders. I remember once um, seeing a, a pastor whom I had a great deal of time for. He was a brilliant um, speaker, and he was a good pastor. And he was in, in line for promotion to the head of his denomination. And uh, he was at a, at a meeting of the church leaders, and... Uh, to his surprise, he wasn't nominated as the head of the movement. He went to his rival. And he was so 
and a half that he jumped in his car, raced down the drive with his wheels spinning and gravel flying, and raced off, forgetting that he had promised to take several other pastors to the airport. And I thought, goodness me, this man whom I had great respect for has got feet of clay. And why was that? Because in his heart there was a tiny bit of ambition that he had allowed to grow. And he kept it hidden, but it was exposed that day. See, God is not going to give power to those who are bitter and selfish. Would you give a Ferrari to a 16-year-old? I wouldn't. My first car was an A70. It cost $50 that my parents paid and gave it to me. And when you put your foot flat to the board, you couldn't do more than 30 or 40 miles an hour. And that was probably just as well, because during that first year, I managed to clip the side of the house at least once. I managed to run over a few flowers and give the local garage a slight nudge. Right? So you, with great power comes great responsibility, and you've got to be ready for it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. Because what the author was aware of is that when there is this bitterness in your heart, even a little bit of it, it will grow and it will spoil and affect relationships with others. Because the antidote for bitterness is we find again in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who has done wrong to us. But you know, forgiveness is hard. So on a scale of easy, medium or hard, it's definitely hard. And what I've learned during the years is that it's a process, not an event. It's quite easy to say, I forgive somebody who's hurt you. But then when you're telling the story to someone else of how you were hurt, and if you find that same emotion is surfacing again and you're experiencing that hurt all over again, then you haven't forgiven them. It's still there. And sometimes you've got to go and forgive them many times. Now, Peter came to Jesus one day. And at that time, the local rabbis were saying, if you forgive a person three times, you're doing really well. And Peter thought, I'm going to impress Jesus. So he goes, how many times should I forgive someone who does something wrong to me? Is seven times enough? Bearing in mind that the local rabbis were saying three times is enough, he'd say, well, I'll double that. I'll impress Jesus by saying, I can forgive seven times. And Jesus said, no, not just seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times 7, which if my maths is correct is 490 times. But Jesus was not saying it's a specific number. You don't say, right, you've had your 77 times, I don't have to forgive you anymore. No, he's saying it's infinite. It's until you can get rid of that hurt again. Because when you think about it, if someone hurts you and you remember it and relive that hurt, they're hurting you a second time. Why give them that, that pleasure? So Peter was quite shocked, I think, realising he had to forgive multiple times. Why is it so hard? It's because often we think that we're the victim, that it's always somebody else's fault. It's always all their fault. And we don't even acknowledge that maybe a little bit of the fault is ours. And when we do that, we have this collection of hurts, and it's a bit like a junkyard. All these rusting things that are way back in the past 
that we can't get rid of. And every time we talk about them, we relive that, and it's not helpful. So the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1 said, So we must get rid of everything that slows us down, especially the sin that won't let go. And for some of us, it's unforgiveness. For others, it's other things. But notice that he said, we must get rid of everything. So, do we want to be like a motorcyclist who is pulling a little cart behind him? Or do we want to be like a motorcyclist who is free from that encumbrance and can lean into the, to the corners and really roar along with some enthusiasm? We have a choice. We can either putter along or we can zoom along. Now, the things that slow us down vary. We can be overloaded by all sorts of stuff. And the Holy Spirit will tell you what they are. I'm not going to tell you. It's not my role. It's God's role to show you which things are holding you back. And there are some examples that we can learn from from Jesus. You remember the story of the rich young ruler who came to him? And he said, all these wonderful things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus said, you've got one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven. And the guy went away sad because he had lots of stuff. Sometime later, Jesus met the woman caught in adultery. And you remember, he said to her, he said to the people who had accused her, okay, which one of you has, has no sin or those without any sin can cast the first stone. And they felt embarrassed and they slowly left. And then he turned to her and he said, from now on, God, do not sin any longer. He didn't say to her, well, I want you to give all your possessions away and sell everything you have and give to the poor. Why? Because that was not an issue she had. The rich young ruler was trusting in God and his money. This woman was trusting in her relationships and her problem was a different problem. So Jesus put his finger on it and told her what to do. And then, to his dismay, his own team of disciples got into a scrap one day. I thought this, this image was quite a good one because in any decent rugby league game, there's always a bit of pushing and shoving. No one gets real hurt, but it must be great fun to run in there and pretend to, you're going to punch somebody. So a dispute developed amongst the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus said to them, you must sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. No, he didn't. That wasn't their issue. Their issue was ambition. So he said, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Now, if you come into a team and you're the youngest, you're the one with the least experience, you haven't really done much, you've just been promoted on potential, so you tend to keep quiet. You don't brag. But the one who's been there a while, who's done something and scored some tries and done these wonderful things, they're the ones with the status and they're the ones shooting their mouth off. And Jesus said, no, no, it's not, it shouldn't be like that. So what he was doing was speaking to the issue that was important to them, which was ambition. Now, what he was asking for in each of these situations was repentance. Now the Greek word translated as repentance is metanoia, which means... You're heading in one direction and you turn around and you head in another. 
And quite often I think when we say that we're repenting, we stop doing something that's wrong, but we've only done half the job. For example, if you're like me, then sometimes you open your mouth and let the wind flap your tongue around. And anything afterwards, I shouldn't have said that. I've said something that's cruel and hurtful. And if I decide to stop doing that, which I do quite often, that's only part of the job. If I then turn around and say, well, okay, instead of saying something that is cruel and hurtful, I'll say something as kind, then I am truly repenting because I've completely changed my behaviour. And when you do that, when you stop feeding your old nature, when you stop doing things which can cause you to be selfish, when you do things that are kind and putting others before yourself, then that part of you that is negative is shrinking. And that goal of loving God with 100% of your heart gets closer. In Isaiah 57 verse 17, he says, Our holy God lives forever in the highest heavens. And this is what he says. Though I live high above in the holy place, I am there to help those who are humble and depend only on me. Not who depend partly on me or mostly on me, but only on me. And if we trust in other things like our education, our intelligence, our money, as well as God, then it's mixed. And God will say, well, okay, I still love you, I still bless you, but I can't entrust you with lots of power, lots of spiritual power, because you've got these other things that you're trusting on, and they're going to trip you up. If we want to really move towards 100%, we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to tell us which things to let go, which are those things which are obstructing us, which are slowing us down. It's not my job to do it, it's the Holy Spirit's job. And if you ask him, he will tell you. See, Jesus said, I came so they would have life and have it abundantly. We're not supposed to just survive, we're supposed to thrive. And that's what God wants us to do. And this morning as we come to communion, we have an opportunity to look into our heart, to ask God, is there anything you want me to let go of? And he'll tell you. And as you do, you will sense that forgiveness, you will sense that empowerment, and you can go out and live an abundant life. Thank you.